X-Ray. Good morning. Welcome to this week's episode of Everything is Interesting. I'm Kira, and on the line is... Also Kira. Yay, two Kiras. Kira and Kira. (laughs) So this week here in Portland has been crazy, as you guys all know. There's been so much snow and so much ice. We've been buried for days. And the storm has had everybody trapped indoors with nothing to do but stare longingly at the outside world and wish that they had brought those snow pants that they saw on clearance last summer. So we thought it might be appropriate to do a show based off of the thoughts that might have popped into our heads about snow and ice and the cold, cold days of winter. We did a call out to our listeners to see what they had been thinking about, and we got some pretty good questions. So we're going to see if we can help answer some of those questions. Uh, Jefferson? We're looking forward to seeing what you think about these. 931 bathtubs. That's uh, what I think. You were prepared. I'm impressed. 931 <laughs> bathtubs. It, 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 my, my estimate, okay, based on nine inches of snow, ice, and rain melting on 145 square miles of Portland, which are, 100, which are the square miles of Portland, would be uh, about the equivalent of 931 bathtubs per person emptying each Portlander, emptying 931 41-gallon bathtubs onto the, uh, onto the streets and lawns of our fair city but uh, that's what i know what what else do i need to know about the snow okay well, know, oh, i'd like to try that experiment <laughs> yeah i know i, I get a good visual a really good visual so yeah. okay so our first question that we got was are all snowflakes really unique i don't know Thoughts, what you, jefferson mm-hmm. uh the only thing anytime I hear unique that I want to say is is that you can't vary unique. That something is you can't be lots unique, the most unique. So it's it's you're either <laughs> unique or not. So I, I go to I go to humanity I go to humanities. I'm gonna say yes, but barely. That's what I have to say about that. That is a a very good way to describe it. We don't actually know that every snowflake is unique. You, I mean, if you want to take an electron microscope and go collect every snowflake in the world and examine it, then feel free to tell us what you find. I do. Um, but the, the shape that snowflakes take depends on uh, the temperature and the humidity of the clouds in which they form. And that often has to do with the location and the altitude of the clouds. Uh, remember the story of Watson the Molecule that we did a, a couple weeks ago? Yes. From our rainstorm episode well just like raindrops snowflakes also need a central nucleus to condense and form around and that determines their shape as well yeah for snow this nucleus often ends up being a piece of dust or airborne bacteria which has already collected a little bit of water condensation that's remember watson and his water molecule buddies from before and then the below freezing temperatures that exist in the atmosphere cause that water to freeze as it condenses and then a snowflake is born So the original shape of whatever nucleus or seed will ultimately end up affecting the pattern of the flake that develops as it forms. So if we assume they're not, that they are roughly speaking unique, but also have some similarities, what's the basic shape? Are they six-sided, eight-sided? It seems like maybe we see them both ways. Uh, that is a good question. In in Christmas decorations, you see them depicted both ways. Um, but regardless of that, the real ones all have six sides or display some variation of uh, six-fold symmetry. And this is actually due to the way water molecules arrange themselves when they freeze and become crystals. Uh, because the water molecules always have the same shape, when they stack into a lattice or, you know, a crystal, a water crystal, they form tiny microscopic hexagons. So to understand why this happens, you have to understand why water molecules have the shape that they do. So if you've ever seen a depiction of a water molecule, or if maybe at some point you got to become really, really small and have actually gone to see a microscopic water molecule in person, 
And Lucky. Hugh Jefferson, Lucky. Uh, well, then you'll know it looks sort of like an obtuse triangle. So each water molecule has one oxygen atom in the middle and two hydrogen atoms sticking out from either side of the oxygen. This sort of ends up looking like the pointy part of an arrowhead. So due to these angles, we call this tetrahedral geometry. But that's only if we're being nerds about it. Which we usually are. As yeah. distinct okay. from the other times. Go ahead. Sorry. So all atoms start with the same basic shape, which is, uh, you know, these little negatively charged particles called electrons that are orbiting around this central nuclei or nucleus. Um, and we tend to talk about electrons in pairs. So oxygen on its own has four pairs of electrons. Hydrogen has one pair of electrons. When two hydrogen and one oxygen atom combine into a water molecule, they get to share some of those electrons with each other. But this leaves oxygen with two extra pairs of what we call unbonded electrons that are just sort of hanging out outside the nucleus, outside the shape of the molecule, and they're just sitting there causing trouble. We call those the lone pair electrons. And these unpaired electrons are so small that when we make representations, you know, draw like a water molecule in a book, we don't even include them. But they still have power, repulsive power. So lone pair electrons by nature are extra repulsive to other electrons. So now imagine that oxygen molecule again, but include those two sets of lone pair electrons. So now you have your central oxygen atom in the middle, two hydrogen sticking out from either end, as well as these sort of two sets of lone pair electrons. And imagine it like the oxygen has four figurative sets of arms sticking out from it. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Very repulsive arms, right? So all this repulsion affects how water molecules interact with each other. When water freezes together, all these triangular molecules line up to form a three-dimensional crystalline structure, and they align themselves into quite beautiful lattice of interconnected hexagons. Thus, the bigger crystals, the snowflakes that we can actually see with our naked eye, also appear as hexagons. I've heard that snowflakes are not perfectly symmetrical. Is this true? And does this mean geometry is big lie? Yes, you got it. You figured it out. Geometry is a lie. Man, if only we'd all known that like 100 years ago. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. The laws of Euclidean geometry are pretty infallible as far as we know until you get into quantum physics. However, you are right about one thing, that snowflakes are not symmetrical. And they aren't perfect because they don't form in some sort of perfect, you know, a controlled vacuum chamber in a lab. They're exposed to all of the same elements you and I are exposed to out here on Earth. And as they fall from the sky to Earth, they tend to spin, meaning different sides of a snowflake may experience slightly different environments. Yeah, snowflakes get, I don't know if it's a bad rap, but like the special snowflake is supposed to be, oh, because the snowflake is especially different from other snowflakes. Pretty much anything in nature has a little bit of differentiation from anything else in nature, right? Yeah. Whether any kind of, of animal, any kind of rock. I mean, there's no two identical anything. Yeah, it's yeah. absolutely a good point to make. Isn't that great? I love that. Okay, so next question. Let's do a quick true or false. True or false, all snowflakes begin as raindrops and begin to freeze and form crystalline patterns when they have dispelled all of their trajectory energy and reached terminal velocity around 20 miles per hour. Static electricity inside the cloud prevents water from freezing, so they have to freeze on the way down. False. Uh, what? I don't, I don't even remember researching this one. Well, you didn't even let him answer. What do you think, Jefferson? It's false. I believe, I believe that is false. I, I don't know. What, I, I'm not even going to say I think that's what everything means. But I think if something starts as rain and comes it down, we might even call that sleet. We might call it freezing rain. But I think snow sometimes starts as snow. 
Well, you are correct. I totally made all of that up, except for the terminal velocity. Really, is only 20 miles per hour. Isn't that crazy for raindrops? Well, that's not that fast. Um, yeah, it really isn't. But you, but the slate you were talking about actually is. So if a raindrop forms inside slate, the cloud, I was right. is on the way down. You recall that slate. Give this man a prize. I guess it's good that Never raindrops don't fall faster than that, right? Because imagine if they were falling from the sky at like 60 to 80 miles per hour. Like that, that would hurt. I get ridiculed. I don't know if I'd want to be out in the rain. I get ridiculed, punctuated by rare moments of praise and elation, but I do not get a, I never get a prize, but keep going. You got a prize. So I, no, I just, just to <laughs> clarify for all listeners, hey. snowflakes are formed when water vapor that has both condensed and frozen inside of the cloud. It all happens up there. So knowledge is my prize. In the snowflake factory. <laughs> Kira, remind me to bring him a prize next week. No, okay. Did you hear him? No, knowledge is his prize. is so good. Oh, oh, my God. That's like every teacher. Every teacher, their heart got a little bigger just now. I'm going to bring you a gold star for that. <laughs> I was just doing it so you'd give me a prize. See, so you get a prize, and you get a prize on top of your prize. This is great. Okay, next question. Does Puxitani Phil really have the power to change the seasons? If it's sunny and Phil does not see his shadow... Legend has it that winter is almost over and spring will come soon. Does that mean that Phil will cause the Earth to revolve faster around the sun in order to reach the spring equinox sooner? No, but Phil does have the power to make me wake up at precisely the same moment every single morning until eventually I'm really good at playing the piano so I can impress the girl down the street. Spoiler alert. (laughs) And how does Phil give you this power? Between me and Murray. Phil. Between you and, yeah. and, and, and Bill Murray, right? And Harold <laughs> Ramis. I guess that's one question science can't answer. But if, if he does, that's one pretty powerful little gopher, right? Yeah, he really is. Little guy. I have actually have been curious if Punxsutawney Phil does have... He's not a gopher. Is a gopher... Oh, what? I'm sorry, not a gopher? Oh, God. Wait, he's not a gopher? We're about to have everything is interesting with Jeff Smith, explaining the difference between gophers and Punxsutawney (laughs) Phil. I thought he was a gopher. He's totally not a gopher. He's totally not a gopher. Okay, what is he? Wait a second. Is he a person? Oh, he's a groundhog. But the groundhog is the same as something else. What's the other thing? Not a gopher. See, guys, this is why it's important to be okay with being wrong, because it happens. I really did believe he was a gopher. Dude. Gophers are real small. Punk's tiny big. Punk's tiny big. Punk's tiny <laughs> Phil's kind of big. You've seen these things? I mean, they, they're, like a, they're like the size of a little kid. Like really little, like a baby. Like the size of a baby. A, gr- a gopher is like, like a little, it's smaller than a squirrel. Oh. But uh, that's enough. Really? That's enough Jeff-splaining for now. Carry oh, on. Oh, a groundhog, a groundhog is also the same thing as a woodchuck. Oh, so how much wood can a Punxsutawney Phil chuck is really the question. Are, do you guys do poetic. in preparing for this? Do you do tongue twisters? Do you do toy boat, toy boat, toy boat, toy boat, toy boat? Oh, oh, like preparing for. Do you talking? do red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather? <laughs> no, because I would. I do would you do terrible. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickle peppers? I can't even say water molecule without going water, water, water. I now do these things very often in the morning so that to reduce my error rate for the fair for fair people. All right. Okay. Well, let's let's go on because I have a great question that came in from one of our most dedicated listeners, Mr. Donnie Diamonds, and that is his name. He asks, why does something cold often feel wet even though it's dry? For example, if you leave your shoes outside in the winter, when you put them on, it's hard to tell if they're wet or just cold. What is happening there? Hypothesis, Jefferson? Any I have ideas? no hypothesis. I was Googling the differences between gophers and groundhogs. <laughs> 
<laughs> the important things we learn here on our science Everything show. Everything is interesting. The uh, I, I do uh, do I have why? Uh, okay, hold on. Why does something cold often feel wet even though it's dry? Right. Yeah, I, I'm going like, to make a guess. Go can for I make that. a guess? Yes. Okay. I don't know. Okay, yes, I can make a guess. I think I'm going to make two guesses. One is because it might be. I know that what, one thing I know about water is that it holds temperature better than other things. Okay, so it might be that when that water might be a particular temperature. I'm used to water on my skin not being warm, so I just kind of like like when I feel cold, it feels like the same thing as when cold water mm-hmm. is on me. The other is so it's, I don't blame it on the water. I blame it on myself. The other possibility that I can imagine is that I know that when water's on me, that that evaporation cools me down. Right. So being wet, I get colder than if I weren't wet. It's why it feels good jumping out of the pool. Even you're no longer in the water. It's evaporating. So you're cooling off. So maybe it's just that when I'm wet, I'm used to being a little cooler. So when I'm cold, that makes me that that gets my brain engaged in kind of a, a, a false conclusion because I'm used to feeling that way when I'm wet. How about that? I think that is a very succinct way of saying it. Yes, I would say that that is correct. Boom. Because your skin contains my show now. <laughs> Jefferson gets another Sorry, prize. I'm, I'm, so I'll, I'll your skin contains different neurons, and they're all able to detect t- uh, different sensations. So you have like the mesonerve corpuscle neuron, which can detect the texture of things. You have the uh, you have one that can de- de- detect vibration. You have uh, thermoreceptor neurons that detect heat. But we don't have a neuron specifically to detect the feeling of wetness. So you are correct. To figure out if our skin is wet, we have to rely on context clues. Yeah, something that is wet causes this signal in our cold receptor neurons and some variation of your pressure I don't feel neurons. wet. I feel cold. Right. So when that same combination of neurons gets triggered by the boots you just brought in off the porch on a cold day, then your brain says, oh, yeah, I remember this feeling. This is the feeling of something that's wet. And that's how you perceive it. So Groundhogs are also called whistle pigs. Whistle pigs. I'm sorry. Whistle pigs? Yep, let's just leave that one hanging for a second. Another name for groundhog. <laughs> cool. Okay, this is my favorite question because it was submitted by Kira's mom, Cheryl. I get to say hi, mom, on the radio. <laughs> Which is really the whole reason we do this show. Um, so, here's Kira's mom's question. Are certain shapes of snowflakes more common in certain regions? And, bonus question, what purpose does such beauty serve in the natural world? Definitely my mom. Definitely my mom. I... As far as snowflakes, I cannot think of an answer that that kind of beauty serves in the natural world because usually when asked what, what does a certain type of uh, visual attractiveness have to do with the natural world, it has something to do with evolution, right, attracting a mate. And I don't think that, unlike the whistle pig, I don't believe that snowflakes mate. On the other hand, <laughs> are certain shapes of snowflakes more common in certain regions? I'm going to hazard a guess, sure. My my guess is there are probably some climate factors, some sort of elevation factor, maybe things that higher are different than lower. So I don't know, maybe Denver is a little bit different than some flatland place. You are doing so good this morning, Jefferson. So according to Kenneth Liebrich, professor of physics at the California Institute of Technology, snowflake shapes are typically dictated by the amount of moisture in the air. So snowflakes that exist in dry air tend to be simple, while those in more humid places can turn out to be quite intricate. So yes, they have a sort of difference depending on where they're at. Yeah, but you, you gave me too much credit. I said something about like height, and it, you said more yeah, about like but you were kind of You were on the right, right. track. All right. Yeah, uh, temperature also affects the shape of a snowflake. Um, they often look like columns or flat plates uh, when um, 
when it's really dry outside and then you get these big branchy snowflakes that look like Christmas decorations um, when you're in a warmer, more humid area. And that could also involve height. So you're on the right track too because temperature can vary. You know, you go higher in elevation, you lose, you know, it gets colder, lower down, it gets warmer. So, so okay. And what purpose does such beauty serve in the natural world? What I do gave, you guys think? I, I, gave I, you I, my I got your answer. your answer. Kira, what do you think? I think beauty is subjective. I think, uh, beauty is something that humans invented. I don't think there is such a thing as beauty. I mean, obviously, right? Like who would be like, is nature itself judging what beauty is, what is beautiful? I think humans are naturally drawn to things that um, depict the laws of the natural world. And I think that that, um, I think that that is what we call beauty. And therefore we think snowflakes are beautiful. I don't think. All right. I got I got a weird one for you. I got a wacky hypothesis for you. Okay. Here's an argument for it. What, what if that, what if that, you know, like super string theory and some such is true. And this is not the first time this planet has been around. And maybe sometimes this planet doesn't work out. Okay. Maybe sometimes it goes away. Right. In some parallel, in some parallel universe. universe. But, but eventually sort of like the, you know, the, the creature that killed Superman, every time that this planet is killed, it figures something new out. And maybe what it needed to figure out is that each time humanity lets the planet burn and melt because it doesn't appreciate the planet enough. And so each iteration of the planet makes it just a little prettier. So humans appreciate it just a little bit more. So we're a little bit less likely to destroy it through climate change and misuse of our natural resources. So you're talking about almost like a weird evolutionary adaptation on yes. a planetary yes. parallel yes. universe quantum string yes. theory level. Yes, like the I think death you're of talking Superman. about an episode of Rick and Morty. Yeah, or Futurama. I don't know them. I don't know them, but I'm just, you know, I'm just inspired. I did math last night. I couldn't get to sleep. I should have gotten more sleep and said I did math. I think I got, I got it. I got it wrong. I, mean, like I think that's a great hypothesis because, you know, as we said, like the, the beauty that is beautiful for a reason tends to be because of an evolutionary adaptation that helps a creature attract a mate or, you know, somehow survive better. better. And then all other beauty tends to be just how humans perceive it because it's a human prescribed feeling, right? It's, it's a thing. So, but, but I don't know. I, I have to say that I love my mom for asking that question because it's so <laughs> her and also because definitely beauty in the natural world serves a great purpose to us. So while it may not be the opposite, you know, it's important to humans. What's next? So pretty. All right. Let's talk about, here's another uh, listener question from David Z. Did we already ask a question from David Z? You gotta love this guy. Nope. This is the first one. He asks us two questions. Okay. So the first one is what condition is needed or which, which conditions need to exist for snow to sublime? I love this question so much, possibly because I love sublimation. Um, I also love submarines, subtraction, and sub-sandwiches, but that is just pure coincidence. So, I, okay, let's start off, just for those of us who don't know, what is sublimation? Well, it's the conversion of a what material. What I do to my feelings. To all use, oh, <laughs> explains so much. Well, maybe it's that, but it's also the conversion of a material or a substance from its solid state directly into its gaseous state. So this seems unusual since we are used to there being a liquid state in between. Like, say, the process of heating a block of frozen water until it melts into a puddle of liquid and then finally vaporizes into the air. But sublimation is something that under the right conditions for a certain substance totally happens. So... That's sort of like, um, that's what happens with dry oh, ice, right? With I'm supposed clogs. to say something here. You can say something whenever also, you want. That, when you guys are quiet for a while, you know who's usually screwing up? Well, I'm trying to give it's you not, a chance. Let me, let me, here's a clue. It's not the whistle pig. What? That's not, not who's screwing it up. It's usually me. Should but that be like goes wrong. the word I'm I I'm not the only person that makes mistakes 
but I might make the most. You ever see a low budget play? I'm just I'm just gonna riff here for a moment, just totally ad lib. Where a thick layer of fog rolls across the stage, they use dry ice for that, yeah. Which, if my powers of deduction are still strong enough, still might be an overstatement. I, is that a good example of sublimation? That's crazy that you just pulled that thought yeah, out of thin air. And it off uh-huh. script. Your deduction powers are good. Mm-hmm. So My deduction so, powers tend to be written in red. The answer is yes. One of the most commonly known examples of sublimation comes right from the special effects department. Uh, much like normal ice is the solid state of ordinary water, dry ice is the solid state of carbon dioxide. And uh, dry ice is notoriously colder than regular ice because carbon dioxide has a much, much lower freezing point in water, like 109 degrees, like 100, negative 109 degrees. That's cool. Yeah, it's pretty considerable. So under normal conditions, carbon dioxide exists in a gaseous state. And by normal, we mean here on Earth, where it is subject to the standard pressure of our atmosphere. Now, pressure and temperature influences when a material changes states between solid, liquids, and gases. So you get the combination of things right, and you get a change of state. So to get carbon dioxide to go from its gaseous state to a solid frozen one, the gas has to be subjected to pressure that's greater than our normal atmospheric pressure. And then when the dry ice is exposed to our normal air again, uh, the carbon dioxide begins to revert directly back to its natural gaseous state. It's just, so is it's that really why cool. is that why in the movie Real Genius, when they had like some some frozen gas, it was like in this pressure container? Is because not only does it have to be really cold, but it should be pressurized so that it doesn't have to be quite as cold to freeze it. Mm-hmm. Yep, you got it. Increase the pressure. You don't. Okay. Need, yeah. All right, I understand. So okay, so let's. You don't talk have to about... have seen Real Genius. It's not that important. <laughs> Just imagine, Val Kilmer. Yeah. Val Kilmer. So So let's talk about what needs to happen to get snow to sublime. So it turns out that here on Earth, when the conditions are right, regular old frozen water can and does sublime. It's just not usually as rapid and thus not as dramatic as when dry ice does it. And the conditions have to be just right. For ice and snow to sublimate, the pressure of the surrounding atmosphere must be really low, and the relative humidity must also be low. Low pressure and humidity ensures the molecules of water have enough room in the atmosphere to, like, easily vaporize into. And then there has to be some form of heat energy input, like sunlight. Uh, And it still has to be applied to the snow or ice because all changes of state require some input of energy to even occur in the first place. But the temperature of the air that's surrounding the snow or ice also has to be cold enough. The temperature at which something melts is known as the melting point temperature, and the energy required to get that liquid to then vaporize into a gas is known as the heat of vaporization. So to get frozen water to sublimate or to, to sublime, the temperatures surrounding the ice have to be below that melting point. If they were above it, then the temperature of the air around the ice would simply supply enough energy to trigger a state change, and the ice would melt into a liquid. Sublime started out in Long Beach, California in 1988. And I'm sure they named themselves after the scientific term. <laughs> Brad, yeah. Bradley Knoll, Eric Wilson, uh, Bud Gaw, Lou Dog. Keep going. I was going to make a, a, a joke about how fog is like smoke, but I'm too tired to make it be funny. Okay, so the freeze-drying process, for example, uses the sublimation of frozen water. So let's say you want to freeze-dry a tomato. The tomato is first frozen and then placed into a vacuum chamber where the pressure is lower than normal atmospheric pressure. So being in a vacuum guarantees that the humidity within the chamber is zero because it's a vacuum, so there's no molecules of anything present in theory. Uh, With the temperature below the, the melting point and the low pressure and the extremely dry conditions, when heat is applied to the frozen tomato, moisture trapped in the, in the frozen tomato skips the transition 
from, you know, to a liquid phase and instead sublimates directly into water vapor. The water vapor is then trapped and removed from the chamber and it leaves this nicely freeze-dried, moisture-free tomato chunk. And sublimation of water also occurs in nature. So in like the Rocky Mountains and the Sierra Nevadas in the western United States, the air is extremely cold and the high altitude results in decreased atmospheric pressure. So here, the passing of strong, extremely dry winds, known as Chinook winds, can vaporize ice and snow before it has a chance to melt into a liquid at all. Also a casino. Also a casino, which will vaporize you if you go inside as well, so don't do that. Uh, the energy <laughs> of the intense sun, which is beating down on this landscape, it that's what provides the energy input needed to get the snow and ice to change from the solid state into the gaseous state at all. There's a lot today. There's a lot on snow and ice today. Yeah, well, we had a lot yeah. of snow and ice. We've, we, we've had snow and ice material that's being built, and I just don't mean physical material. I'm talking about knowledge, droplets, special snowflakes of information. Right. That have been, been a maelstrom uh, of new information. You know what I'm saying? There's just been, that have been subliming. I don't know. If that's your correct usage <laughs> uh, for 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 weeks. For weeks. Thank you so much, Kira and Kira. We have to say Everything thank you to all of our listeners who contributed questions as well. That was an awesome way to do it, and we probably pay attention to our Facebook. We'll probably do some call-outs in the future for some questions for the show. And so. stay tuned for next time when I ask why does hot food smell so good when odors waft out windows on a cold, crisp, wintry day.